0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Ms. Pat Irving, chronic pain patient and patient advocate who is here to tell her story. And with that, I'd like to welcome Ms. Pat Irving.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Of course, let's begin by understanding your story. So Ms. Irving, can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and your story as a chronic pain patient?
1: Absolutely, thank you. Um, my background is I'm a registered nurse, and I worked for Kaiser Permanente for 40 years in risk, patient safety, and quality. And the reason that's important, as the story goes along, you'll see how my knowledge of how Kaiser works has both helped me and hindered me with, with my chronic pain.
0: Sure, so let's start from the beginning. Talk about when you first became a chronic pain patient and what the story is around that.
1: Okay, so um, after I retired, I, um, I developed CRPS, which is Complex Regional Pain Syndrome, and it developed in my left foot due to a break in my metatarsal bone. So for those that don't know about this condition, it can come on from the smallest of injuries and develop into really a limb-threatening and extremely painful uh, condition, which can last years um, and be very incapacitating. I was very fortunate that I was close to a pain center that had an interventional anesthesiologist who was able to help me get control of that pain Um, But it took almost three years, and that was when I was first started on pain medication, specifically oxycodone. Um, After my recovery, I would say it's in remission, CRPS never really goes away. Um, I developed piriformis syndrome, which is, for those that don't know, a uh, compression of the sciatic nerve as it goes through the pelvis, so a lot of people that have sciatica, it's originating in the back. For me, it's originating in the pelvis. And um, again, um, it's extremely painful, w- prohibited me from driving. Um, and I had lowered myself from oxycodone down to Norco, but when this piriformis syndrome was developing. but in order for me to do anything such as drive from where we lived up to see my son, my son is disabled and so he can't come see us, we needed to go see him. The car ride was extremely painful and it, it there was no way to do it without the pain medicine. So I've remained on the pain medicine um, since that time.
0: Certainly, and thank you for sharing that story before we before we continue let me summarize a few things that i think are important for the audience to understand one you have medical training you are a nurse Uh, two your clinical condition was progressively worsening as you were developing these syndromes as defined in pain management lexicon your pain was worsening and growing more complex, let's say. At the same time, as what I'm understanding, you try to taper yourself down from the pain medications that you were taking. You had mentioned high dose opioids to low dose opioids, but at some point that wasn't quite working. So my okay. question to you would be one, why did you feel the need to lower yourself from higher dose opioids to lower dose opioids as your condition was worsening. And at what point did you realize that these tapering efforts were not helping?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I did have some very, very good Kaiser physicians at that time. And they were wise enough to, you know, just alert me if you can get down on your dose you know that's a helpful thing and let's look at alternatives which i am very open to you know let's try physical therapy which i did and the nerve blocking um so the lowering was an attempt to kind of balance that as the pain continued i was not entirely successful um and understandably and that's and i still remain on the pain medication to this day because the conditions that I have um, prohibit me from leading a full life. Going, my husband is in early stage dementia, so I'm trying to be active to take care of him. He has dementia. My son has M.E.C.F.S., so he is permanently disabled with chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, I do. I'm not the caregiver, but I want to go see him and be with my son, and the only way to do that is to have not be in excruciating pain, to not have that pain. So I have some mobility um, and some bandwidth, for lack of another word, to go do the things that it's important for a mother to do and as a wife to do to take care of my husband who has dementia. So Um, let some... Go
0: ahead. Let's parse this out a little bit and maybe talk about your experiences with your physicians. You seem to have a positive experience with your physicians. Were there ever times when you needed additional pain medications and were they receptive? How were those conversations going?
1: Okay. So, so, um, this is a time, I think, to transition, let me know, to the next part of my story, which is we moved from where I had very supportive physicians. We just moved last September, um, which, of course, in itself was it was a big ordeal to move yeah. from where we were. We moved up to be close to my son. That was the whole okay. purpose in moving um, so that I wouldn't have to have that long drive. I could be closer to him and see him. Um, we were in a house no more than 3 months when my new primary care physician said that I was to be mandatorily tapered off my Norco. No control, no input. We had I we hadn't even unpacked. I didn't even know where my toothbrush was. The house was a complete disaster. My husband is more confused than ever because we knew when we moved it would cause a disruption on him but we wanted to be close to my son um and i begged her not to do it and she said i have no choice she said and i found out later this was not true the cdc is making me do it and I know enough about regulations to know the CDC doesn't make you do anything. There are guidelines. Um, long story short, and then I'll let you ask questions. It was two weeks before Christmas. We were just in our house, and they started tapering my meds against my will. No wow. Input.
0: Um, I'm very sorry. I'm. I'm just I'm very sorry to hear what you had to go through and it's just another added stress with Everything you're going in the moving your family situation. So uh, Thank you for sharing that because that's not easy to talk about I, I wanna I want to break this moment down into more detail because I think it's a very common occurrence for so many chronic pain patients so l- Let me just set the stage um, as, as a nurse, I'm sure you had the medical records, you had the test, test studies, the imaging studies, other blood work. You presented all of that to your new primary care physician, and it almost felt like it was for not. Like talk a little bit about how you tried to justify your clinical condition and how it was perceived in the mind of your new primary care physician. I I wanna I wanna understand that dynamic in granular detail.
1: It, this was, uh, as a nurse, very fascinating. So the first time that I saw her was in late September. I made sure that we got in, well, I knew how important it was to get set with a primary, um, especially at Kaiser. So I, my, it was pretty soon after we had moved. And at the first visit, she was ext- she, extremely supportive. Um, There was no indication that she was going to alter the medications that i was on she understood that i had piriformis syndrome she understood my history of crps Um, i'm also struggling with bursitis which is not life-threatening but certainly an added you know discomfort to all the pain i was having she was extremely extremely supportive suddenly and this is the interesting part of the story out of nowhere in october She said, Pat, I am so sorry, you're not going to like me anymore. And I said, because I like her a lot, a lot, and a lot. And I said, why? Why what? She goes, I'm going to have to take you off your narco. And I said, out of the blue. And I said, why? Why? And she said, here's what Kaiser rolled this out so horribly she said they they she kept using the word they the pharmacy is making me do it they are making me do it and as a nurse i'm thinking dr Joshi, i'm thinking how can the pharmacist make you the physician do anything it made absolutely no sense, you're the doctor, I'm the patient, you've already, She'd accepted me as a new patient, she'd accepted me knowing that I was on Norco, she'd already said she'd do a renewal, and now she's telling me the pharmacist will not let her give these meds. I was very confused and asked for her to get clarification, and she came back and she said, I will lose my license if I continue to prescribe you meds. And I said, I I have a license. I know what that means to you. I understand, but please don't. Please, I want to continue to care for my husband and I want to continue to care for my son. And she said, Pat, I am powerless. I cannot intervene. Your taper will start in two weeks. Period. End of story. No risk-benefit discussion. There's risks of going off of long-term opioid therapy. I've been on opioid therapy for over 10 years, almost 11 years. There are known, documented scientific risks. No risk-benefit discussion. No agreement. No, could I wait? I, here. Oh, and this is critical. I begged her, could I please wait till I get psychological support for my husband? and for myself, my husband has dementia. And I am very afraid to be, it's just a natural reaction, to be going off of this medication. And she said, no, you cannot wait to get psychotherapy. You cannot wait, you are going on in two weeks. No, I had, the, the, pro, the protocol, they call it the protocol, comes with no support, no psychologist, no physical therapy, no pain management, no consideration that you might be taking care of. I have friends. So Kaiser has done this to hundreds of patients. Hundreds of patients have been given a two-week notice. I have a friend. I have two friends, very close friends. One is 82 years old. She's bed-bound. She has diabetes and she got two weeks notice that she was going to be taken off her meds. My other friend is in her 70s. She just lost her husband. She's widowed. She lives by herself. She has post-cancer and Kaiser gave her two weeks notice and took her off her meds. These patients are suffering. Was this all
0: happening at the same time?
1: Yes. Yes, it's all all in the fall of
0: 2022.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Um, And I I don't know if you want me to go into it now. I did not accept the the fact that it was the CDC. I kept telling her, you're not, they're giving you, and I could tell she believed it. I still like this doctor. (laughs) I don't know how, but I still like this doctor. I said, they're lying to you. It is not the CDC. Please listen to me. And she said, I don't know what to do. I don't know who's behind this. So I said, fine. Let me see if I can find out with my 40 years of experience at Kaiser, at national leadership. Let me see if I can find what's going on. So I started asking around. I did put in a grievance with Kaiser. I started doing some research. And what I got back. Collaborated. What I got back both in my research and from talking to the CEO's office, we did not talk to the CEO, I talked to an executive liaison, they both said it is because of the injunctive relief which came along with the National Opioid Settlement in July of 2022. Because of this settlement, the distributors are now required to tighten their grip on the pharmacies. They are are required to specifically look at suspicious orders, red flags, in an even more concentrated way. When you say those terms, people think of, oh, that's the DEA. That's old language, this is nothing new. This is new and it's terrifying because what the Attorney Generals did in their settlement when they settled with the three distributors, so there's three distributors for opioids, this is so ominous. They took the DEA playbook and they wrote it into the injunctive relief for the settlement. So when the three distributors signed off, yes, we agree we lost this settlement with you, the Attorney Generals, they agreed to follow all of these rules every time with every prescription or every pharmacy across the United States. So this is so far beyond Kaiser. I just, when I learned this, I was speechless. And I thought, I can't be right. I, I must I must not be interpreting this correctly. And then and so I'm going through withdrawal. I'm not feeling good. I'm trying to take care of my husband. And I'm thinking, I've lost my mind. What is going on? No one could help me. And in December, I saw an article in Reuters that was just It was just like, it saved me from thinking I was going crazy. In the Reuters article, which I will be happy to share with people, the investigatory journalist found exactly what I found, and he disclosed in this injunction are all these red flags, all these suspicious orders, all these cutbacks, so that when patients are now telling you Why can't I pay cash anymore? Why can I not get... uh, Oh, here, let me give you a perfect example. Why can't I get a... My doctor has ordered a stimulant with an anti-anxiety med. Why can't I... my, My psychiatrist is really frustrated because he can't get that combination anymore. And the pharmacy is telling me they won't give it. But I've had this my entire life. The person has ADHD or PTSD. And the reason is in this injunction are these rules that are written in. It's like a piece of malware, Dr. Jassy. so in this injunction. There's this malware that's cranking out that says, oh, this patient asked for a stimulant and a sedative together. Nope, can't do. They don't call the physician. They don't write the physician. They don't, they just don't give it. They say halt, halted right then and there. So." I was partly relieved and partly terrified, realizing that this was far bigger than I ever... This is so far beyond Kaiser. It,
0: yeah.
1: it has nothing to... In a way, it has everything to do with Kaiser.
0: So but nothing you, you to do with So you said a Kaiser. lot. It's, it's amazing how <laughs> blame, blame gets deflected, but we are the ones that are facing the consequences of it. You, you, that, that was a very powerful response. Uh, there's so much in there. I want to unpack things piece by piece. Okay. The first thing I want to impact, uh, uh, unravel, is um, this notion of red flags and suspicious orders. Just playing devil's advocate for the audience, I think it's important to understand this. Why can't I simply say these red flags are important? It's important to stop suspicious orders it's important to pay attention to the red flags elaborate on this concept of red flags that just seems to be everywhere and why it's so harmful for well-intentioned chronic pain patients with legitimate medical needs
1: it's is such a good question this is the heart of the question the heart of the question is twofold one is they are not scientifically based. These were rules that the DEA came up. They are not medically based. And here's the most important part. It takes our physicians away from us. It blocks that patient-doctor relationship. My doctor can't say, for example, Pat has ADHD, and she needs a stimulant during the day to be active and she needs the anti-anxiety med at night to sleep. I am the doctor. This is what my patient, I want for my patient. He can't say to the 82-year-old friend I have, oh, you've been on 100 MME, I'm making that up, but 100 MME of narcotics, and I, as the physician, deem that that's, and have assessed, and have evaluated that that is the correct dose for you. This woman is an amputee. And and the physician cannot say, you've been on that med, I want you on this med. The pharmacist comes back with this rule and says, or in this case it's a suspicious order, and says, no, you cannot, doctor. We are halting this immediately. And the pharmacist goes away, and the patient doesn't get their med. And the scariest thing is, once you've been rejected by this system, they take your your name, the doctor's name, the order, they send it to the attorney. I mean, this sounds like it's out of a spy book. They send it to your attorney general. They send it to the DEA. That doctor is fried. That doctor is done. And I can see why my doctor is terrified. She's terrified. She wants to take care of me and she can't. And I want her back. I want to get the news out because I want her back.
0: Wow, it's um, so disheartening in that you seem to have found a really good relationship with the new primary physician. But because of all of these factors, you're not able to maintain that relationship while have your medical needs properly cared for as well. I wanna to touch on that, because I think it's an important point to talk about that relationship dynamic, but you had also mentioned something that I think is very important for people to understand. You stated you went into withdrawals. Now, when you use that term, and thank you for your honesty, but when you use that term to those who may not have chronic pain, it evokes these, pun intended, red flags of addiction, of nefarious behavior. And that's not at all the case for patients with chronic pain who are exhibiting known side effects of rapid or excessively rapidly tapered opioids. So talk a little bit as a chronic pain patient with known conditions, what withdrawals mean to you, and why okay. there's a clear distinction between chronic pain patient withdrawals and addiction withdrawals?
1: Oh, such a good question, and I was going to bring this up if, if you didn't. So a patient like myself, like my 82-year-old friend, who is taking these medications for known debilitating physical diseases that you can see and measure and touch. You can see CRPS. You can measure piriformis syndrome. You can look at this woman and see that the agony she is in. When, when that happens, you and you're taking narcotics, opioids, for an extended period of time, your body becomes physically dependent. Now that process doesn't mean you're addicted. When someone is addicted, as you know, the colloquial behavior of going on the street, looking for drugs, um, uh, being obsessed with where am I going to get my next medication, doing, doing behaviors that might be unsafe for you or your family, irregardless of what it means to get that. Physical dependence is a biologic process that happens where after you take a medication a certain amount of time, your body is dependent. But it's not any different than being dependent, by the way, on Cymbalta or Prozac or any of the other medications that they give us. I am physically dependent on Cymbalta. And I have tried to get off Cymbalta, and heaven help you if anybody knows what I'm talking about, because it is the worst physical dependence. So there's a big distinction between physically your body saying, Oh, okay, I'm dependent on this med, and the behaviors that would be associated with abuse and in a mentally unstable patient. Now, when you go are taken off The symptoms can be very similar. So let me tell you what happened to me. I had suicidal ideation almost every day. I knew exactly how I would take my life, and I was going to do it. And the only reason that I didn't do it, I'm going to cry, was my husband and my son. I can't leave them, they need me. I had panic attacks. I stopped eating, I had despair, it's not depression, and I would have taken my life. My doctor, you can tell how their hands are tied. All she could say was, Pat, please don't kill yourself. Pat, please don't kill yourself. okay. I'll try not to kill myself. Not, let me see if I can take you off this protocol. Not, what can I do? Can I get you into a treatment program? Not, no, please don't kill yourself. Okay, I'll try. I, I, if it weren't for my husband and my son, I would not be here. I would not be here. And neither would my friends. My friends, I'm speaking by the way for the hundreds of thousands of other patients like myself who are out there. It is not just me. And we have all struggled, all struggled. And tomorrow, and you know this, and it's okay if I cry, we're gonna lose a pain warrior. We're gonna lose a person who's been fighting pain, and is gonna have assisted suicide, and we're gonna lose her. And it's all because they've taken our doctors away. I, will, It's all because they've taken our doctors away. We want them back, and I don't know how to get them back. It, I, I couldn't believe we could live in this time in the United States where the only option someone would have would be assisted suicide or suicide. It's inconceivable to me. And I am not the only one. I'm one of hundreds of thousands. I'm just one voice.
0: No, but right now your voice is very powerful and I want you to understand that there's a lot of impact behind what you're saying and i i hope that i'm doing justice by bringing it to light first and foremost um i i want to um continue on this theme of patient physician relationship because i think it's critical yes you talked about wanting your doctors back you talk about how these external factors these day the proverbial they are doing this. Yes, It's destroying your patient-physician relationship. Talk about how these policies, these guidelines, these litigations are affecting your day-to-day experiences with your physician. Talk about the time before and what it is now and the emotions you go through now um, seeing your physician versus what it was like before.
1: There's a loss. There's a couple of things that are really, really big. One is the intent is clear. So, the intent behind all of this is not to let's make Pat Irving better. The intent is let's follow these rules so we protect our doctor's license, which I get.
0: Legal liability.
1: Yeah. But the intent is not let's help Pat Irving. So you feel used. We all feel like we're just we could be discarded. We feel like our healthcare systems have just thrown us out as trash. Um, our there is in the group of people that I talk to, we feel hopeless and without a voice. Um, And that, and and I'll I'll say briefly, when we reach out to groups that should care, like for us seniors, Medicare, we're turned away. We were told care was appropriate, that Kaiser's doing the right thing, that it was standard of care, what they're doing. And so you feel betrayed, I feel betrayed, and hopeless and frustrated and despair and mostly discarded we feel like pain patients don't matter we don't matter because no one in this entire organization or the organizations that should help us like medicare are doing anything they all know the problem is there i've personally talked to the chief medical officer at Medicare. I have personally talked to Dr. Fletcher. I have personally talked, personally talked to his associate, and they can do nothing. They can do nothing. They're very nice people, don't get me wrong. I respect them both very much, but this entrenchment of these protocols that overwrite any professional judgment have overtaken it is like our healthcare system has been turned upside down and no one cares no one yeah. no one cares I, I i i'm just i've tried all i know you were going to talk about advocacy i have tried everything i know from my 40 years experience as a nurse and as a nurse leader and as a national leader, I have reached out to every group I think could help. I have emailed every group I think could help. I am on every forum. They are, The forums are wonderful. I have gotten so much support from the forums, but we're going nowhere. We are going nowhere. And worse than a personal tragedy is the tragedy for our nation. When you take us out of the equation, us worthless patients that you're dumping on the street, Kaiser. You're taking out people who were working, people who were caring for their children. I have a friend who has a nine-year-old, she can no longer care for her nine-year-old. You are taking care of, taking out husbands and wives and volunteers and people in churches. You are taking out the core of our society. and. And now these patients cannot function in society. So you've just you've removed that part. They can't do their jobs. They can't bring in income. They're now some of them so disabled that they have to go on disability, which they wouldn't have to do if their pain was managed. And so we have a crisis where, because of these rules that the DEA and the attorney generals think are so important, we have a new. Here's how I look at it. They have created a new mental health crisis, a mental health crisis that was never there before. A mental health crisis where patients are in despair, who are suicidal, who cannot function. And I should add this is really important the healthcare system has not at all brought up their support to make up for the fact that, oh, we're going to take you off of these meds and you hear, oh, you can do yoga and meditation and all of these things which are wonderful, but do you think for a second that any of those are close to me? Do you think my, in, the closest, since I've moved, the closest interventional anesthesiologist is an hour and a half away? The reason I moved was to be close to my son so I wouldn't have to drive an hour and a half. And now where i I had no idea when... I wouldn't... Well, I can't say I wouldn't have moved. My son means everything to me. But I didn't realize when we moved that I was giving up all of those things that... They promise you, okay, if we take you off of meds, we're going to do all of these things for you. And they're not here. They are not here. And I'm the lucky one. I know how to work the system. I know how Kaiser works. I know how to ask for pain management. I know how to ask for those things. All of my colleagues and friends, they don't know. They don't know. Well, how do you ask for interventional radiology? How do you get that? And then when they ask, they find out their insurance doesn't cover it. I am the lucky one.
0: Yeah, you know, it's a great point. You mentioned because people don't understand how insurance coverage focuses on cost-effective care. And before opioids developed the stigma that they have today, they were deemed the most cost-effective care for chronic pain. And when you eliminate that, when you remove the most cost-effective element to your care, you're left with alternatives that may be procedure-based, that may be more expensive, but as you're alluding to, they're not providing coverage for it. They're not offering that in a way that's realistic with your insurance plan. So for patients in your situation who may not understand how to steer the conversation with their physician or nurse provider, provide some tidbits, give some language, some context that they can use so that they can have meaningful conversations to get the care that they need.
1: It's it's very difficult right now. Um, it depends on the healthcare system they're in. It also depends on their situation. One thing I, I will just bring up again, because it's not patient specific. And like I hate to keep using these two friends as an example, but you've got this 82 year old woman. I'm sorry, she is bed bound. She is not a candidate for interventional anisets. Physiology, or yoga, or meditation. My other friend, in her 70s, is disabled. She can't get to these appointments. So when they take a one-size-fits-all protocol, this is what we're going to do for every patient: our 82-year-old amputee, our 72-year-old post-cancer patient, and you're going to run that across the board. These patients, even if they wanted to, couldn't access the help that they need. Now let's say you were talking to a 25-year-old or a 35-year-old who had recently been in a car accident, and maybe they could access that care, then it requires a conversation where, and it's very difficult in today's world, where you, you have to be your own advocate, where you have to say, this is the situation that I see. And in my research, I have read that this procedure could be helpful when, if you have an open conversation with your physician and your insurance is willing, you may be able to get that connection. That's possible. But my experience and what I'm seeing out there is that's not happening. The patient, the physician's not going to bring up that procedure, most likely. And if the patient brings it up, then they're, they're seen as, as, as trying to override what that insurance company is willing to do. Um, I I wish I had better advice for people other than advocating for yourself, maybe finding a patient advocate. Um, That position does exist. Um, I I would highly recommend doing it. They're very expensive, but if it's your life and your quality of life, it can be worth getting a patient advocate. Absolutely
0: where could patients find such advocates are there online forums or resources that they can use to find those advocates
1: yes absolutely i would for any of our our, the patients out there i would recommend starting with one of the big forums like the doctor patient forum Um, it's nationwide it's very well um, supported there's experts from all areas if you ask for something specific like could you help me find a patient advocate they are more than happy to help you do that if um, if you want to know about a certain law that's coming up that they think has impacted them they have experts like Dr. Red Lawhorn and he does this amazing amount of research he can provide background on any number of things so if I would say connect with your forums. I have been particularly pleased with the California doctor patient forum. Um, I've realized that that's specific only to California. Each state has a, so there's a national forum, and then each state has a forum underneath that. And I'm very fortunate in California, um, it's a very active group. Um, Monty Goddard is our administrator and he is on top of everything. And you'll find the same things with other states, so that pain patients can find, ask questions with not just other pain patients, but with experts who have been. Some of these advocates have been working for 10, 15 years, so they've been out there Monty and Red and Dr. Nadal, they have been in the field for 15 years. They know. They know where to go. They know what the rules are. And they can really help guide patients, I think, um, when times get tough.
0: Yeah, I would agree. For many patients who feel like you are alone out there, I hope uh, Ms. Irving's words gave you a certain level of comfort to let you know that your story is like so many other patients, like Miss Irving, and before before we conclude, I, I just wanted to thank you for sharing such a powerful story about what you're going through, about the family struggles you are enduring, yet through it all, advocating, because it's really important that you are given the opportunity to share your story, because for so much of the talk on opioid, opioid settlements and whatnot, the key element that's missing, which really should be front and center, are the stories of patients like yourself.
1: I, I would absolutely agree. And um, I am on all those forums and, you know, I feel very comfortable saying, you know, I cannot give medical advice, but I am so happy. The one thing I feel really good about being on those forums is, we reach out and we help each other. And I know if they reach out to me or to anyone on there, they will be welcome and have support. Um, and there's just a really good community of people out there. So there, there should be hope. But no one should feel like they are alone. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, well said. Well said. Uh, and so with that, Ms. Irving, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you telling your story, and I look forward to learning more.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Johnson.
0: Take care.